Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, Dylan Authority, Michael Gray. I see pieces of men marching, trying to take heaven by force. I can see the unknown rider. I can see the pale white horse. In God's truth, tell me what you want, and you'll have it, of course. Just step into the arena. Beat a path of retreat up them spiral staircases, past the tree of smoke, past the angel with four faces, begging God for mercy and weeping in unholy places, Angelina. In God's truth, Michael, why did you choose that very difficult and fascinating uh, I excerpt? love that song. Yeah. I think on a different day he might have sung it. He sounds as if he's got a cold Ooh. as he sings it. But, you know, I can't... That seems to be the only version, and, and uh, as far as I know. Um, maybe Clinton Halen would say that. <laughs> Um, but I love that song. There's so much beautiful writing. I could have chosen almost any stanza uh, uh, right from the beginning, you know. Well, it's always been my nature to take chances. What an extraordinary first line. Mm. Because on one level, it's autobiographical. Of course, it's true, you know. He, it always has been his nature to take chances. And, mm. then, and then he qualifies it with... Uh, um, my right hand. My right hand. Uh, um, my left hand drawing back while my right hand advances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, um, yeah. Do you think that, I wonder if that's a, uh, a reference to the oft-repeated tale that he deliberately signs autographs in his left hand just to mess with you? Oh, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> he does. Uh, I've seen him do that. He's right-handed and he will just do it with, you know, his right yeah. hand draws back and his left hand advances. Yeah, I yeah, wonder. yeah, yeah. When we were talking about uh, how awful... To make you feel my love is mm. one of one of the things that I was thinking was, I don't like it when, when he kind of recycles himself. Mm. I mean, obviously, mm. it's his body of work. Uh, I don't mean when he sings a, a song he's done before, obviously, but when he uses bits of lyric that he's used before. You know, at one point before Planet Waves came out, uh, it was said that it was going to be called. Ceremonies of the Horseman. Mm. And I thought, no, no, you can't trade on, on something you've said mm. before. And, and I had this kind of uneasiness with the way he, he uses wind. Um, after blowing in the wind, fine, you know. And then we get to Forever Young, and he sings, uh, May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. Mm. And then when we get to Make You Feel My Love... He's singing, the winds of change are blowing wild and free. That's, that's too much recycling. Mm. He's, he's stealing from himself, yeah. Yes, yeah. But on, on the other hand, he, he does use w weather all the time, doesn't he? So, uh, yeah. you know, that's, that's something that, that seems to work, the, yeah. the, the continued use but, of... But, you know, change, changing, shifting winds, you, yeah. can, you know, once is enough for that, I yeah. guess. We um, in the in the previous podcast, we uh, there were many albums we didn't touch on. Uh -huh. um, I'm particularly interested in your take on uh, Together Through Life, just because I quite like it. Luke uh, quite hates it. Where do you uh, stand on that particular album? I think it's uh, it just sounds like any old pub rock band to me. <laughs> uh, uh, With an yeah. accordion, Tex-Mex okay. pub rock band. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know. What is there? I mean, a, you know, apart from Forgetful Heart, 
What is there on that on that album, really? It's fun. I think that it's fun like a pub rock band. Fun, I don't find it fun. No. I think Beyond uh, Here Lies Nothing is the most honest thing on that album, that being the name of the first song. I just feel like I'm saying too right, yeah. I mean, I think maybe he had a holiday from Profundity with that album, and mm. I can Well, you know, you know I, I, think, um, I think he sometimes felt the burden of having to be profound. Mm. And when he escapes from it with something, something to express... Uh, feeling rather than necessarily a, a statement, you know, then I think that works beautifully, like Love and Theft. He's thrown off any obligation to be profound, you know, and it's all the better for it. He's doing but his together, panties overboard, yes. Together mm. through life, no. I mean, and I used to think it was a horrible title, you know, until I realised it was a, a quote from Walt Whitman, and that um, that 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 makes it a better title. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> At the weekend, I was looking through some of the, some of the just little snapshots from your books, Song and Dance Man, and also from the Bob Dylan Encyclopedia. And you got little things taken down some of them because they're just fantastic little sound bites about about certain albums. For example, this is you on Unplugged, the dreariest, most contemptible, phony, tawdry piece of product ever issued by a great artist. Do you still stand you by about, that, Michael, or do you, do you, do, do you put it on up? sometimes when you're on a Saturday morning when you're feeling late and No, fluffy. I never play. <laughs> that does sound a little bit severe. <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, I think, I think the trouble with, uh, with the response from fans to Bob is generally uh, completely in the other direction. You know, that anything, anything he does... It's just a work of genius and is brilliant and marvellous. And I think it's necessary, it's healthy for his own art to, uh, you know, have that kind of gushing excised sometimes. Mm. And and, and that, that album, you know, the context is that that was such a disappointment. He had just done those two solo acoustic albums yes. and they really were unplugged. Mm. And he had this opportunity to do an unplugged using that material mm. and just how fantastic that would have been you know i would so have loved to have seen him being unplugged mm. and doing that instead of which he just rolled over to what the mtv wanted and they wanted his greatest hits you know and uh, he sang them so badly and even wore a polka dot shirt and shades as well didn't he i mean that can't have been his idea well who knows, because um, apparently it wasn't his idea to wear that lovely suit for the first um, David Letterman appearance. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, he, he came into the punk band's dressing room mm. with this, apparently with this horrible kind of white leather fringy jacket on. <laughs> and they said, no. <laughs> and, and lent him one of their, one of their outfits. Yeah. And, and, you know, all credit to him that he said, oh, okay. You know, there was a little a little booklet that the bass player of the Plugs, who were just becoming the Crusados at the time, he wrote a lovely little memoir, which is really hard to get hold of now. But uh, so that's how we know how that rehearsal stuff worked. You know, mm -hmm. that uh, that he hired them Monday to Friday for two weeks to rehearse, and in the course of that stuff, they rehearsed a hundred and something songs. 
By rehearsed, I mean what Bob meant by rehearsing. I, he would turn up, grunt at them, and uh, start playing something on the acoustic guitar. And uh, he wouldn't say what it was. And if they were really lucky, he might play the same song again a second time through, but in a different key. Yeah. And, you know, he was testing musicians, and some of them hate that, but some of them rise to it. And uh, they did, of course, they did. And then, you know, it's just such comic genius when you see the show, and, uh, you know, because they were rehearsing all those songs for a three-song performance yeah. on the show. And, um, and Letterman is at the desk and he's introducing and he's blathering away, you know, about this great artist and the privilege it is and so on. And he's holding up the Infidels cover and saying it's a great piece of work, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Dylan. Mm. And Bob turns to the group and says, let's do Don't Start Me Talking. This is a Sonny Boy Williamson song from, you know, the mid-50s. Nothing to do with the Infidels album. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I so admire that because what he's doing there, Dylan, is he's, he's breaking through the sort of oleaginous smear of, of coast-to-coast important American television. And he is making, a li- he is creating, he's busting through that and creating a live event, an authentic moment. No one else would dare to do that on a, on a show like that. Mm. Everyone else would just rehearse to death and be completely perfect and do exactly what they were committed to do. Yeah. No, they, were, they all want that handshake from David Letterman at the end. Yeah. Bob Dylan probably barely knows who David Letterman is. Well, you know, and, cares, and at anyway. the end, actually, of that, uh, at the end of the first song, letter, you see Letterman come on and he's sort of squirming around awkwardly on the, on the set in front of Bob and the, on the plugs. I don't think he knows what he's saying because at one point he says, very nice. <laughs> to this great artist of our age, mm. David Letterman says, very nice. Well, he's probably shitting himself, to be fair. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, uh, sp- speaking of uh, infidels, uh, there's one thing you said about Sweetheart Like You. Uh, you called it suffocating reactionary nonsense, and each line is a repressive lie. And then I think you said, ugh, many, many times. And, Most uh, people love it. Yes, well, they I do. Like I'm absolutely with you on that one. I, I, he seems to be announcing himself as somebody you would not want to have a relationship with. I also like the Samuel Johnson quote, which seems particularly um, appropriate these days. You know, they say that patriotism is the last refuge to which a scoundrel clings. Yes. Steal a little and they throw you in jail. Steal a lot and they make you king. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's simple, it's trite, but it's, it, it hits me. I think... I just thought it was a bit too recycled, but um, it's certainly apposite now. I wondered if um, if all the quotes from my work that you were going to read were going to be quite so scathing. Or, no, I've got a good whether, one here. Whether, actually, this, I, because this is the, the of all Bob Dylan's albums, I think you are uniquely responsible for giving this one a serious reception, and I, I, I thank you for it. We've spoken about it on this podcast before. You said of Street Legal. Street Legal is one of Dylan's most important, cohesive albums, and it warns us, as pointedly as art ever should, of what is to come. It's an interesting one, Street Legal, because a lot of people in this country saw Dylan for the first time around then, either at Earl's Court or Blackbush. Yes. I didn't really understand Street Legal until I heard the remaster, and I read your, your book where you talk a lot about Robert Johnson and things like that, and then I started to approach it from a different point of view, and I feel, and now I love it. Mm. But I think you've helped me love it, and I think it's probably true for a lot of people. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, well, I, of course, I did go to the Earth Court concerts. I went to all of them, mm. and Blackbush. Mm. And it was just a thrill because, you know, he hadn't been here except for the Isle of Wight, 
uh, in 69. He hadn't been for 12 years when he came for, for uh, those Earth Court concerts in 78. Mm. And um, no one knew what he would sound like, what his voice would be like. And, you know, people had said, oh, we saw the stones there in Earth Court. Uh, the sound was so bad you couldn't tell what they were singing, you know. The sound was absolutely crystal clear for Bob. Mm. And um, at the time, I didn't know any of this stuff about, oh, well, he'd gone to see Neil Diamond and uh, he'd been impressed by Neil's setup, you know. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't think it was. Um, I didn't think there was anything remotely kind of uh, to be to be adversely critical about. Um, I thought it was completely thrilling uh, from start to finish, and uh, and he was so there. Um, uh, it was magnificent, mm. and so of course um, that maybe seeps into how you feel about street legal, mm. and certainly it's part of why. It's why Budokan is a disappointment because it was, it was so poor a representative of how it felt to be at those concerts. Yeah, um, and of course, then uh, if you go on and listen to the American concerts that he did after, mm. then it's different again. It's very different. But I also um, I went to the Paris shows as well, oh, and yes. they were just heavenly. Just the ju- early July '78. Have I got that about right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think I've heard of the man in me from from one of those Paris concerts. That's, uh-huh. that's, that's yeah, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I went. Uh, I went over for the Paris concerts and um, stayed at the same hotel as Bob, which was the Hotel Maurice, which is extremely expensive <laughs> uh, and very splendid. They they were having a party after one of the shows in the basement, Bob's lot. I went down there and um, they had to let me in because I had a, I had a key. I was a resident mm. uh, and it was just a bar, you know. Mm. But um, they were quite reluctant to let anybody in except Bob's own entourage. Uh, and um, I'd met him uh, at backstage at one of the Earl's Court concerts uh, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to talk to him again at, at <laughs> Paris because... You know, I knew he wouldn't want to talk to me again. It was as simple as that. The record company woman went and said uh, something about, you know, my, um, would you like to say hello again to, to Michael Gray? And uh, and very predictably, he said, no. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so, but I never, I didn't, I didn't ask her to ask him. I wouldn't have asked him. I think I got to meet him because he was aware of my book, but didn't want to admit it. Yes. And so he he got the record, the London record company woman, to ring up one morning and say, um, Bob says, would you like to come backstage and say hello? And I said, Yeah, I think I, could, I think I could manage that. Uh, and I was, I was. Um, I was getting divorced at the time, and so I was going to these six uh, Earl's Court shows with a different person each night. Yeah. And uh, the night that I was asked to go and say hello to Bob, um, I was taking my son, who was then nine, and uh, that was that was great as it happened mm. because you know Bob does not do small talk, and mm. uh, he was literally loitering about in this backstage behind the stage. It was pitch dark, more or less, and he was wearing dark glasses. Uh, and uh, Pumping and, into things. And he had his hair out, like, very 66-ish. Mm. And people were, uh, were in this white hospitality room. And um, at one point, I saw him put his head round the door to peer at us just for a moment. And it was exactly like one of the sort of shots from the inside sleeve of Blonde on Blonde. It yeah. was just so great. 
Anyway, um, people were brought out to meet Bob in little groups of two and three. So um, my son and I were brought out alongside, along with Robert Shelton. Well, of course, they knew each other well, and they had an uneasy relationship because, you know, uh, Robert Shelton knew that he had helped Bob's career get kick-started mm. with the review in the New York Times. Mm. And Bob, of course, resented feeling that he owed anybody anything, mm. especially by then, you know. But nevertheless, you know, they, they still talk to each other each time Bob came to England, because that's where Robert Shelton was living by then. And when we were brought out, um, there were already three people standing around Bob, and Bob was talking to one of them. I don't know who that was. But the other two standing around, not being spoken to by Bob, were Bianca Chaga and Jack Nicholson. <laughs> this was a fairly heavy-duty occasion, as far as I was concerned. And in those days, nobody asked Bob Dylan for their autograph. It was just an unspoken thing that nobody dared do. I mean, years later, loads of people did. But then you didn't. You could ask anyone else, but not Bob. But my son didn't know that. And so uh, he, he, the rather beautiful 1978 tour programme uh, was in his hands and uh, he found himself without a pen, as you do. And so he turned to this woman and said, Excuse me, have you got a pen, please? Lady. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, she fussed in her Nicaraguan peasant designer handbag and uh, produced this rather naff biro and... Uh, thrust it at, at my son, and uh, he said to Bob, excuse me, can you sign this, please? And Bob got down on one knee to be on a level with my son and signed it for him and wrote a very Undylan-esque thing, which was, um, well, it seemed Undylan-esque at the time. He wrote, uh, be safe always, best wishes, Bob Dylan. And he wrote it all with his left hand. And I said, I'll look after that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm still looking after that. <laughs> My son uh, will be 50 in July. Right. So he, I love the fact that Jack Nicholson was there. Nobody asked him for his autograph, <laughs> presumably. So no, that's, yeah. no. Uh, Jack, of course, you know, Jack was very happy. He was just standing around there smiling. Yeah. Uh, and Bianca Jagger was fuming at being ignored as she saw it, you know. But Bob was talking to whoever he was talking to. Mm. And I remember very little, you know, because when it's something that's so important to you and so unimportant to him, it, it's, you know, it's not that I expected anything. Mm. Uh, I knew it would be like that. But it's still, I, my mind went completely blank about the whole experience for quite a long time afterwards. But I just remember a couple of snatches of conversation uh, really with Robert Shelton. I still smoked uh, cigarettes in those days, and Bob smoked two of my Marlboro cigarettes. And so, of course, I've kept the packet. <laughs> uh, serious critic of his work, you know. Did he smoke uh, in the European way, like they talk about in Thunder? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice that. But uh, I remember Robert Shelton saying to him, perhaps a little cattily, that um, the reviews of the uh, of the warm-up shows in Japan had uh, one of the reviews had said that the backing singers sounded like the Supremes, and I remember Bob said, "Oh no, not the Supremes, the Raylettes, maybe." Ha. Yes, 
Absolutely. And was Street Legal out by then? I know that ba- Baby yes. Stop Crying was a single, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah, it was out. Yeah. And, and were they, they're the same... I mean, if we, for example, were to hear a live Earl's Court 78 album, would we be hearing the flutes and things like that, like we hear on Budokan, or was it a different setup? Yeah, but they weren't so high in the mix, really. Yeah. I'd be very interested to hear that, I must say. I loved having things like the saxophone. And I've always loved it when Bob has a piano, mm. whether it's him or someone else playing it, mm. you know. I mean, I love I love the sort of gran- grungy, stripped-down, nothing-but-guitar, bass and drums. But I also love the richer, more varied sounds. This was also the year after the death of Elvis Presley, which yeah. is something that anyone who knows anything about Elvis or, or Dylan would think that the, had produced something significant in his work, but it never really did, did it? Yeah, it's one of the photographs has him with a kind of ridiculous Elvis Vegas suit on, doesn't mm, it, on, yes. on the Budokan album. But um, no, and, and, and I think it was huge, Elvis's death for Bob, uh, as it was for everyone, you know. Mm. I know that, you know, Bob went to the Sun studio tour, which I did too, and which was fabulous, because, you know, it was, I say it's a studio tour, there's only one room, it's a tour of a room. And, you know, you see that the baffle tiles on the ceiling are the same ones mm. that Sam Phillips stuck up there himself in 1951, or whatever yeah. it was, uh, in order to record Howling Wolf. And the microphone, the vocal microphone that Elvis sang into for That's All Right is there yeah. in the middle of the room and you're allowed to touch it. And there's a piece of tape on the floor, isn't there, that marks the spot where he sang? Or well, there was when I went about ten years ago, anyway. Uh-huh. I went, I think it was probably about 2003 I went. Um, I don't remember that. And I know that when Bob went, he kissed the floor, you know. Um, I also remember him saying something in in an interview once, which really surprised me, about how Susie Rotolo knows that... um, that uh, in 1962, 62 and 3, I was listening to those Elvis singles. And, and that surprised me only because by then, Elvis singles had finished being great. Uh, like charm and things, that wasn't it, by, by that time? Yes, and One Broken Heart for Sale, <coughs> yeah. Please Don't Drag That String Around. Not, not great singles. No. Um, but, of course, when Elvis came out of the army and did the Elvis's Back album in 1960... That was a bit too grown up for me at the time because I was, you know, 14. But I loved it, but uh, but some of it was a bit grown up for me. Well, reconsider babies. Yes. It, it, that's, that's quite uh, a shock, isn't it? To and, and, and actually now I think it's... I cannot think of a white blues recording mm. better than Elvis's Reconsider Baby, yeah. which is, you know, nothing like the Lowell Fulson original. He's not copying at it at all. No. He, and he, I think he always did that. With with the blue stuff he did, mm. I think one of the great injustices is the kind of general myth that Elvis ripped off the blues, you know, because he did it because he loved it and he recreated what he did. Absolutely, it was an act of love. Uh, there's something I discovered quite recently, which ties into which ties into Elvis and Dylan, is a as a day in 1966, May the 26th, Elvis recorded "Tomorrow Is a Long Time." Uh, the first time he he recorded a Dylan cover, he did it um, yeah. like he would five years later in the midst of a gospel session. On the same day, the Beatles recorded Yellow Submarine <laughs> and Bob Dylan and the Hawks played at the Royal Albert Hall. Wow, yeah. One day, and it's yes. just... 
phenomenal to me, the, the, the worlds that exist in that spectrum. <laughs> Elvis finally catching up to Dylan and doing basically a cover, or an Odessa cover, of a, an early tune. Yes. Yes. He's a, Dylan's in a different universe, yes. inventing something entirely. Yes. And the Beatles, who saw him the next night, must have seen him and thought, wow, we're, we're out of fashion. We've just done this ditty about living in a yellow submarine. Yes. Yeah, yeah I think so. And, and, you know, this was a, when Mr. Tambourine Man was new. He first was singing this in 1964, mm. you know. Uh, sang that at the Royal Festival Hall in 64. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've said, this, I've said this in talks I've given. 1964, the Beatles were singing I Want to Hold Your Hand and Bob Dylan was singing To Dance Beneath the Diamond Sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the circus sands, with all memory and fate driven deep beneath the waves. There's a kind of a gulf there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yes. Let me ask you something, Michael. Uh, this is, uh, you, I know you've been asked a lot of these questions, you know, and you give talks and things. Have you ever spoken or written about um, Dylan's cover art? Um, no, not really, but it does interest me. It does interest and it, me. Would you care to... Uh, I can sort of see him get more and more depressed in his, uh, certainly through the 80s, to the point where Down in the Groove is sort of like, he looks like a man lost in a sinking, you know, under the into himself um, I mean, and I, I think some of his I think there are a lot of really terrible uh, album covers and we all know the great ones but yeah what, what, how would you uh... well I, th I think it's, uh, it sounds like the album was someone who didn't really want to make an album mm. um, and who hadn't been writing anything and, um, and looks like it as well well that, that photograph's ridiculous isn't it the yeah. cover photograph but I think, I think you know when he does when he loves something, uh, he tends to do it pretty well, or at least he used to. I can't talk about the Sinatra-type stuff because I've never liked it. Uh, it was the bane of my childhood, uh, uh, listening to it on the radio all the bloody time, all these crooners uh, with their horrible finger-snapping and their uh, jazz drums going... God, I hate that stuff. Well, rock and roll rescued people like you from music like that, didn't it? It did. It absolutely did. And if I'd had my way, would have abolished it. <laughs> yes. That, I mean, I'm not... A, I, I know that there's a, a talent in there, but Sinatra's never really grabbed me. But I do remember that that the TV special that Elvis did when he came out of the army, and they're doing Love Me Tender together, and, and it's just... It's uh, kind of toe curling. Oh, yes, it is. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I shouldn't judge. But it's Frank a bit, you know. I mean, that, as but... you said, Bob uh, turned around and uh, kowtowed to the record uh, people mm. for MTV right, Unplugged. Right. Yeah. You know, we didn't see that meeting. I thought it was interesting uh, in the uh, Scorsese documentary when he was dealing with Walter Yetnikoff, or rather, you know, he, they barged into the CBS offices, and Walter Yetnikoff, who was a very strong personality normally, uh -huh. you know, just basically turned into a puddle when Bob Dylan walked yeah, into the office. Yeah. And I thought, that's the way it should be. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's how it should be. I don't know. It's hard. It, it must be unimaginably difficult uh, dealing with dealing with people if you are Dylan because, you know, there's a million people who would just rush up gushing at him every day if if they were allowed to get that close. And, you know, he's not always nice. Uh, I was in um, I was in the States one time. Uh, I was in Hollywood. 
<laughs> and uh, I always loved everywhere I went in the States until I went to California. Mm. I was shocked to find how horrid it was. But uh, anyway, I was there and I, uh, one of the people I met was a guy called Dave Budge, who was the son of a great tennis player, Don Budge. And Dave was um, an executive at uh, Capitol Records. And uh, he was telling me that uh, when Blood on the Tracks came out, they gave a party for Bob, Columbia Records, as it was then. And Dave Budge was one of the people who went. And he goes to this party, and there's uh, Bob looking morose and all by himself in a corner with this sort of paper cup of vodka or whatever. Mm. And Dave Budge, you know... Tells the story, told me this story completely, you know, against himself. He goes up to Bob and he says, Excuse me, I, I, uh, I don't work for your record company. I work for Capitol Records. But um, I just want to say that um, I think Blood on the Tracks is just the greatest album. And Bob looked up and said, So? I guess, I mean, actually a friend of mine worked with, we can always cut this out uh, because this is not about Bob, but it's about Jack Nicholson, funnily enough. A friend of mine was in, uh, was hired to play one of the guys around the Joker in the first Batman movie. Uh-huh. And he was a huge Jack Nicholson fan. And uh, so he, he was like a long gig. It was like, it was like three months. You know, he's one of those guys who were like the Joker's men. So yeah. they were all the guys who were all dressed up in the Joker suits and everything. And it, it was the highlight of his career. And this guy's done a lot of, he's a terrific actor. And it's done a lot of uh, good work. And he went up to um, Nicholson on the first day and said, I'm, 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 I'm Mr. Nicholson, I'm so thrilled to be working with you for three months as being one of your, your men. Uh, it's just like it's like the highlight of my, my career. And this guy's middle-aged. You know, he's not like a kid. And Nicholson just turns to him and says, how nice for you. <laughs> and didn't say another word to him for the entire three months. Where he, was, he was talking to all the other guys, but uh, this guy, as far as he saw, yeah. was kissing his ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had the same... I've, done, I've been in that position once or twice with people who I really admire, and you've got to bite your tongue. Yes, you, you do. You can't do that. You yeah, can't yeah, say absolutely. that. Yeah. I suppose the minute you set up that hierarchy, that dynamic that says you're up there and I'm down here, you're never ever going to shrug it off, are you? And yeah. also, it makes them uncomfortable. Well, of course. As it you would. know, you're, you're, you're not seeing them as yeah. a but, human being. Even. Mm, yeah. But, you know, in the case of this guy at the party, 99 celebs out of 100 would have said thank you and turned away. As opposed to so. But it's true, it's but he recent... got a good story. That's a much better story than thank you. Oh, sure, yeah. And this, you said this was just after it came out as yes. well, so it's yes. not like it's an album from 10 years ago that he'd rather not talk about. Yeah. It's the piece of, of product, in your word, that he's just come out with that he's trying to sell. Yes. I mean, I know it's Dylan and he's probably moved on, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard... Is there a recording out there that you've heard which, which most of us haven't, which, which you could speak about, for example? I've heard uh, an outtake from the John Wesley Harding album that I certainly wasn't allowed to make a copy of. It was, um, as I went out one morning, it was very beautiful and quite different. It was brought round to my house by this guy who uh, has some kind of relationship with Dylan's office. What can I tell you? I don't know. I have no idea how these circles exist, you know. I, I, you hear about these collectors and these... I think they're called super collectors, which makes them <laughs> sound like they have a costume. Um, maybe they do. I don't know. 
But it's interesting about the John Wesley Harding thing because we have reached the point where copyright-wise, if they were going to release them, they would have by now, we think. Ah. Well, because of the, the yeah, yeah. EU 50-year yeah. thing, hence yeah. the 66 box yes. set coming out in November 2016. Yeah. You know, I think the, the line that Sony CBS have gone with is that they're not going to put them out because they don't feel threatened that someone else could. And it's odd because when I hear you say that, of course, I want to hear this version of it as I went out one morning. Yeah. But my my default position... Too. Well, yeah, I mean, my default position, which I'm now questioning, is that if there's one album in the world that doesn't need any outtakes, it's John Wesley Harding. But, of course, I hear you talking about this other other version of As I Went Out One Morning, and I'm very, very curious. But do, do you mean to say this guy came over mm-hmm. to your place, mm-hmm. took out this record, put it on the turntable, you listened to it, and then he went away? Oh, I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was only on his computer. It wasn't okay. a record. Oh, right, okay. It was just a, a recording on a on his computer. And he played it once? Yes. Uh, w- with some other tracks as well? or um, I think there was a bit of something else, but I really can't remember that. Wow. And, uh, so you, when you were listening to it, you must have been, you know, very much in the moment. Yes, I knew. I mean, you know, he told me in advance that I could only hear it once. Wow. And, you know. <laughs> There's a certain amount of drama about <laughs> which I draw back from, yes. shall we say. But people do come to my house, you know. But also people come around if they're, uh, if they're asked. I, you know, I do these occasional Bob Dylan discussion weekends where people come to the house on a Friday tea time and have a very nice supper. And then we have a, an evening in the big sitting room with a discussion and music. And... Um, they come down for breakfast next morning and they go away for lunch to somewhere exploring the rather beautiful part of southwest France that, that we live in. And then they come back at Saturday tea time and we do the whole thing over again a second time. And then on Sunday morning after breakfast, they uh, they go away again. Uh, you know, and I don't think there are many... Uh, writers who bring people into their own house like mm, that. No. Uh, we didn't do one last year, but we're doing one this year, as a matter of fact, from uh, from Friday, August the 16th to <laughs> Sunday the 18th. Well, it sounds tempting, I must okay. say. And, and details on your website? And <laughs> yeah, details on your yeah. website. Yeah. yeah, which is michaelgray.net. It's quite easy to find. And yeah. for those who aren't willing to make the trek to southwest France and are London-based, on the 8th of July, you're appearing at the Troubadour... Yes, in Earl's Court. In Earl's Court, which is a, yeah. a club that Bob Dylan's played in, right? Yes. It was one of the very first places he played. Not the absolute first, but one of the very first. Mm. Um, I'm doing a one-off talk on Bob Dylan's London. Wonderful. I look forward to that. So is that Bob Dylan's London back in the 60s, or do you include other oh, yes. decades? Oh, yeah, the whole sweep. I mean, where, just as a matter of interest, I mean, I know sort of a little bit about the 60s and the pubs he played and that sort of thing. What else do you have to say about, about sort of recent Bob Dylan's London? Uh, we talked about the Festival Hall being the, the premiering, if that's the word, of uh, Chimes of Freedom and, mm. and so on. Um, and then, of course, the, the Earl's Court thing was London, which was this extraordinary first visit for 12 years. Uh, apart from the Isle of Wight, which was an hour at the end of three days of sitting in the mud in '69, mm. um, and then of course you know in the in the 21st century he comes back and does some amazing gigs in London, uh, you know, and does um, 
uh, romance in Durango for the first time yeah. since the 70s, for example. Mm. And Dear um, Landlord. And, and Dear and Landlord, yes. I, was, yeah. I, was at the, I saw that week, I saw the Brixton Academy one when he did uh, Wicked Messenger and then, uh, and then uh, yeah, Heavy and a Bottle of Bread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the days when he used to mess with his set list. I, what yeah. I don't understand, because I know nothing about the machinations of show business, is why he doesn't always play the Palladium really good venues why I know you know I know and it's such yeah. a contrast you you go to these horrible arenas and it's pretty grim for the audience it is and well as is Hyde Park I have to say you know Hyde Park's great fun for a, for a musician standing on a, on a stage as, as, as Michael Han wrote a few years ago after the Bruce Springsteen debacle there. He said it's wonderful for a musician to stand on the stage at Hyde Park and see the trees and the sun going down and all these fans <laughs> adoring you. For the fans, it's not nearly as much fun. The acoustics are crap, there's a yeah. curfew, the sight yeah. lines are appalling. Yeah. Yeah. It, and you're right, the Palladium, the, the, the London equivalent of somewhere like the Beacon would be lovely if he would just go there. Yeah, and that's why, that's why his, um, his concerts at uh, Portsmouth Town Hall in 2000 were exceptional because <laughs> it was a, an exceptionally small hall mm. and there was an intimacy there. Uh, he had to bother more, you know. Mm. He had to feel a connection with the audience more. When we were watching um, the Scorsese film and the footage of of him on stage performing uh, during those shows. He was so intensely alive, but it was a kind of theatrical intensity, whereas when he was hurling uh, like a rolling stone at Manchester audience who had just been shouting Judas, that was a different level of intensity. He knew that he was right about the electric music uh, and, and that the audience was wrong. Mm. And that uh, all this stuff. Um, although I, ha I have a certain sympathy with one section of the protest, which is that yeah, they had come to hear this consummate wordsmith, and in the electric half you couldn't actually hear a word he sang. Mm -hmm. uh, I can understand protesting at that. Um, I didn't, but you know, a majority of people didn't protest. They they wanted to see him. Will you see him again in concert? Well, uh, I would if he would play a small hall. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I, I would never write him off. Mm. Um, but there's no doubt that he's live. He's not what he was. But you're still a great champion, of, and you have been for a while, of little nuggets that throw themselves up. You, you alerted me even this year to a, to a performance of, I think it was Don't Think Twice It's All Right, which is just very, very beautiful. Uh, yeah, from Rochester, New yeah. York, last mm. November. Right, exactly. Yes, and there's, um, I like a couple of the, uh, of the When I Paint My Masterpiece mm. versions that he's been doing. Um, I like some of the changes in the words mm. of that one, as a matter of fact. Uh, in 2017, there was a really good live, very different Summer Days, which was a track that I got tired of mm. uh, seeing in earlier years because, you know, you take Love and Theft and Summer Days is one of those easy rock songs like Everything is Broken or mm. Honest with Me. And I got, t I got tired of it. It was never my favourite track on the album anyway. But he did this wonderful version of it in 2017. Um, Can you describe it? It was non-rocky then? Oh, uh, it was rocky, but it was a different... It was much more sort of rockabilly. It was much fresher. It was... It, was, uh, it, it, it had a different rhythm and a different mood. And it was a re great rejuvenation of it. Yeah. 
Are you still uh, writing, um, uh, working on any masterworks or minor works, or where do you stand in oh, the writing? I, uh, certainly not a masterwork, you know. Um, you, you'd always be running to catch up with him. Uh, and I've always said there would never be a Song and Dance Man 4. And the encyclopedia is now 10 years out of date, even the updated version. So, uh, no. Charles Darwin says in when he's 69 years old that from now on he's just going to uh, confine himself to uh, studying small particular things because that's all he's capable of. Whilst... I don't pretend for a moment to uh, to be that even maybe Bob is uh, uh, is on quite the same level of greatness as as uh, Charles Darwin. I, I do recognise that um, you know there's only a certain amount of time left uh, to me. You know, I shall be seventy three in August, and uh, I don't mind that. I'm I'm lucky enough to apply. As far as I know, I'm. I'm quite well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I still have hair. Uh, <laughs> More than either of us. More than some of us, yes. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I do want to do um, one more book about Dylan, which is uh, a book I've been mooting, I've been mentioning on a blog uh, for a long while now, although I've actually stopped doing the blog. It's still up there via my website, though. It's going to be called Outtakes on Bob Dylan. And it's just assembling stuff that I've written that never got into any of the books. Some of it was published in uh, fanzines and some was published in things like the Daily Telegraph and, you know, other obscure places mm -hmm. uh, like that. And um, So it's your bootleg series. It is, my official bootleg yeah. series, yes. But I do want to include some new writing. Uh, some 2019 writing uh, towards, you know, um, it's going to be arranged chronologically. It's going to start with uh, my review of uh, The Isle of Wight, which uh, was published in the very short-lived British edition of Rolling Stone. And it's going to end with um, with uh, a couple of pieces that, I, that I'm going to write very shortly. I have to say that the Bob Dylan encyclopedia, even though uh, it, it is uh, not current, is uh, still a riveting read. Thank you. Um, the other book that I wrote that I'm that I'm proud of is um, the book about Blind Willie McDowell, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Hand Me My Travelling Shoes, which uh, was just thrown away in America. We sold more in Britain than we sold in the United States. It's another fantastic read. Well, the Blind Willie McTell chapter in Song and Dance Man is, is mm. a great you know, way into that, isn't it? Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I, I researched that for a long time, and uh, no one else had done a biography of McTell. You know, I was, drew, I was brought to him by Bob, mm. of course, by Bob's song, and I thought, well, how does he sound? How does he sing the blues? And, um, you know, I think people were expecting a kind of raw... Charlie Patton kind of a voice, and we got this beautiful, or almost Roy Orbisonian tenor. And uh, I was astonished at how little was known about him, mm. and so I, I found out. As, uh, as so I recall, it, you, it, I think you, the first chapter is him sort of busking in a in a parking lot. Yes, right. In '56, the year yeah. that he um, first had problems, uh, he died in '59. Uh, so this August the 19th, it will be the uh, 60th anniversary of his death. Mm -hmm. 
Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Gay Paris Suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Well, God is in his heaven, and we all want what's his. But power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all that there is. I'm gazing out the window of the St. James Hotel, and I know no one can sing the blues like Blind Willie McTell.